Just go to podcast.pcrcollective.org or mutinyradio.fm podcasts and look for Comedy Clubhouse with a K. You can download it for free. But we'd love to see you every Friday, 8 to 10, down here at Mutiny Radio. Laugh off your tushy and save your life. Because you know what's better than laughter? Well, it's a cash cock, baby. Maybe so. Maybe so. One of these mornings 
Oh, when the sun beats down and burns the tar up on the roof And your shoes get so hot, you wish your tired feet were fireproof Sounds of a carousel 
taste the hot dogs and french fries they sell. Behind the stadium 
show <clears throat> and you're tuned to mutiny radio mutiny radio dot fm 2781 21st street in the heart of the mission el mero mero my name is bill morgan the b and the show is called labor and love labor and love the show where we tell you how it is one person gets a dollar they didn't work for. Someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table, that is, where you work, then you're on the menu. Other people will make be making decisions about your life. And never... But never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. It's only a waste of time. Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. Morning, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. Hope you had a good week and hope you have a better one this week. What have we got for you today? Well, have that first set that we just played, Van Morrison's beautiful poem, Brown-Eyed Girl, from the 1960s, I believe, 1968, Under the Boardwalk by the Drifters, classic, hot sun and hot summer day song, Under the Boardwalk, and before that, Ella Fitzgerald, and Summertime, George Gershwin. Summertime and the living is easy. I wish that it was easier. <laughs> and what have we got for you today? Well, we've got story of Queen Liliokalani, the last ruler of the islands of Hawaii, just this week. The governor of Hawaii told tourists not to come. Don't come in here and spread the COVID. Um, Hawaiian activists, the Trask sisters, had been saying that for a while, but for different reasons. In other words, don't come as a tourist and ruin Hawaii. We got Radio Labor talking about the growth, all right, for the first time in many years. Lately, child labor is increasing around the world. Instead of something that people were gradually getting rid of, now it's booming. Labor history in two. 
one of our, no, our regular features. We're going to have a little music from Rick Nelson. I was reading a book about the 50s and how Rick Nelson was raised and how once he was um, typecast as a clean-cut teenage boy, uh, he lost respect of a lot of musicians, which is something which he really wanted. So, What is open bargaining? People in, on strike in Berkeley are doing something called open bargaining. And we'll have a visit from Mr. Block. Mr. Block objects to anarchism in the rail car. And we'll go on our labor beat. Let's see. Labor beat on Facebook. Collection of labor-based items that will be of interest to labor people. Hmm? The journalists who won't give up on Alabama's striking coal miners, high-rise window cleaners immune to fear in their second week of strike, Visco workers in Norcross, Georgia, go on strike. Soon to be joined by others, by the way. So we'll talk a little bit more about the Nabisco strike. So all in all, that's our show. We're going to go through our credos, as we often do early in the morning. <clears throat> What do we believe in here at Mutiny Radio? What do we believe in here on labor and love? Well, one of the things we believe in is Lawrence Ferlinghetti's poem, Pity the Nation. Pity the nation whose people are sheep and whose shepherds mislead them. Pity the nation whose leaders are liars, whose sages are silenced, and whose bigots haunt the airwaves. Pity the nation that raises not its voice except in praise to conquerors and acclaim the bully as hero and aims to rule the world by force and by torture. Pity the nation that knows no other language but its own and no other culture but its own. Pity the nation. Breath is money and sleeps the sleep of the too well-fed. Pity the nation. Oh, pity the people who allow their rights to erode and their freedom to expire. My country, tears of thee, sweet land of liberty. Lawrence Ferlinghetti. <coughs> this is a little tip of the hat to Robert Reich, who as former Secretary of Labor, has worked tirelessly 
to inform people about the whole big economic game that's being played on them. And right says, I just want to remind you that the richest 1% own half of the stock market. Half of the stock market. That means 99% of us, that's us, own one half of the stock market. The richest 10% own almost all of it, 92% of it. The richest 1% own half. The richest 10% own 90% of it. So when people brag about the stock market, they're not talking about the economy that 90% of Americans inhabit. <clears throat> I would also always wonder that, you know, why do, why do they tell us how the stock market's doing? Here's one about labor education, something that we're 100% for. Back, I'm working on a project now to pilot labor education in our elementary schools in San Francisco. Utah Phillips writes, kids don't have a little brother working in the coal mine. They don't have a little sister coughing her lungs out in the looms of the big mill towns of the Northeast. Why? Because we organized we broke the back of the sweatshops in this country, and we have child labor laws. Those were not benevolent gifts from enlightened management. They were fought for, they were bled for, they were died for by working people, people like us. Kids ought to know that. That's why I sing these songs. That's why I tell these stories, damn it. No root. No fruit. All right, next. Frito. This is off um, Facebook. This is about women. And the trick bag that that women are in as childbearers and as sexually attractive to men. When the penalty for aborting after rape is more severe than the penalty for rape, that's when you know it's a war on women. So yeah. Woman gets raped, doesn't want to have the baby, gets an abortion. She can serve time in jail, more time than the guy who raped her. Now, what do you think about that, my friend? <laughs> uh, let's see. Immigrants. Why are we angry about immigrants? Hmm? I don't even care if they're undocumented immigrants in this country. 
without social security numbers, they aren't privy to the welfare people claim they get. The vast majority of them are normal people trying to live a better life. This whole wall, deport the illegals BS, is just the 1% convincing the working poor to blame a subset of the working poor for the fact that they're all poor. There's the 1% again, the people who own half the stock market. The reason we're all poor is due to the vast income inequality and resource price inflation in combination with wage stagnation. Use your brains. The existence of another poor people is not why you're poor. Because the people who control everything refuse to increase your wages. Right. I mean, let's just be simple about it. <laughs> okay. The reason you're poor is because you're not getting paid enough. All these things are obvious or should be obvious to everybody. So you're just not into politics. Just not that into well, your boss is, your landlord is, your insurance company is, and every day they use their political power to keep your pay low, raise your rent, and deny you coverage. Time to get into politics. See what else we got. A couple more. Oh, here's Lawrence Ferlinghetti again. This is a quote from George Sand, the uh, French author who was a woman and had to take a male name in order to get published. And this is something that all have to take seriously because our outrage the way people are treated at the way we're treated the way working people are treated is all we have this outrage humanity she wrote is outraged in me and with me we must not dissimulate nor try to forget this indignation is one of the most passionate George Sand in other words get mad look around you see what's happening you're being lied to you're being robbed <sighs> okay
want to play something now by uh, Rick Nelson. As I said, Rick Nelson sort of never had a chance. Uh, later on, he worked with a band called the uh, Rick Nelson and the Stone Canyon Band. Excellent work. But by then, I guess people had put him into a bag. Let's start Rick over again. We'll follow the chart. She's got everything she needs. She's an artist. Everything she needs, she's an artist, she don't look bad. She can take the dark out of the nighttime, paint the daytime black. You may start out standing, proud to steal her anything she sees. You can start out standing. To steal her anything she sees But you wind up peeking Through a keyhole upon your knee She never stumbles Got no place to fall child the law can't touch her at all I watched a flame the other night and a moth hypnotized by its flickering light. And the way the flame spun and danced 
The poor fallen moth never had a chance. There he goes, he's getting ready again. The moth is going to dive for the flame again. My life has a similarity, for you are the flame and the moth is me. I gave you up, I said goodbye. I didn't care if you lived or died. And just one little thing knocked me off my feet. It was the sight of you walking down the street. There he goes, he's getting ready again. The moth is going to dive for the flame again. My life has a similarity, for you are the flame and the moth is me. You look so warm, but you act so cold. I feel so scared, I must be so bold. To try and win your love again tonight, so many want you, it just ain't right. There he goes, he's getting ready again. The moth's gonna die for the lamp again. My life has a similarity, for you are the flame and the moth is me. Cause you're a mermaid siren on a barstool rock, holding court for the bar rail jocks. And you'll take one of them underwater tonight and then swim away laughing in the morning's light. The candle cries warm tallow tears for the one who calls but will not hear. But I flew away because there's so much more than getting stuck in the wax like the ones before. There he goes getting ready again. The moth was gonna dive for the flame again. My life had a similarity for you were the flame and the moth was me. A poem by my brother, Bill Morgan. Fort Laramie, 1877. One of the Indians who worked for General Crook as a scout watched his crazy horse, told the white man to go and fuck himself with his lies and his death-type life. And the scout thought this, there is crazy horse riding that beautiful horse and telling them what dogs they are right to their faces. And here I am, standing at attention in a blue uniform. I appear to have a future, but Crazy Horse has everything else. Also, few people recognize a hit once they've heard it. You know, anybody can write a song. I've tried it, you've tried it. But few people can write a hit song. Also, few people recognize a hit once they've heard it. Many years ago, a song was written and nobody proclaimed it a hit until a number of years later. Then the dam broke. The whole world recognized it immediately. Here is the composer to sing it, Merle Travis and the immortal 16 Ton. Some people say a man is 
is made out of mud. But a poor man's made out of muscle and blood. Muscle and blood and skin and bone. With the mind that's weak and a back that's strong, he loads 16 tons. What do you get? You get another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me, cause I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. sun didn't shine. I picked up a shovel and I walked to the mine. I loaded 16 tons of number nine coal and the straw boss said, well, bless my soul. He loaded 16 tons. And what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. Make me walk the line You load 16 tons And what do you get? You get another day older Deeper in debt St. Peter, don't you call me Cause I can't go I owe my soul to the company store Well, if you see me coming You better step aside A lot of men didn't And a lot of men died of iron and the other one of steel. If the right one don't get you, then the left one will. You load 16 tons. What do you get? You get another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. That set, we had uh, <clears throat> Merle Travis, the original composer of 16 Tons, of course, made into a mammoth hit by Tennessee er Ernie Ford, Song of the Kentucky Miner. No matter how much you do, how much good work you do, you're another day older and you're deeper in debt. Before that, we had Charlie Morgan reading uh, my poem about Fort Laramie and about Crazy Horse. And Charlie's song about the moth and the flame. Kind of very nice, you know, metaphor there for someone who wants to say goodbye, knows the relationship is bad for him or her, but just keeps getting attracted back. And then to kick it off, we had Rick Nelson, as I told you, a person who achieved stardom, big stardom as a young man, a teenager even, on the back of uh, his parents' television show, Ozzy and Harriet. But a young man who also wanted to be a serious musician and kind of never got the uh, accolades that uh, he 
wished or that maybe he even deserved. That was a beautiful version he sang of Dylan's She Belongs to Me. Okay, let's see what we got going on here. I want to talk about Kurt Flood. Um, if you're not a baseball fan, uh, probably don't. The name Kurt Flood doesn't ring a bell for you. Flood was raised in Oakland in the 1950s after his family moved to the Bay Area from the South. And, uh, Flood was a baseball player, played uh, for the famous George Poles over at uh, over at uh, Mosswood Playground, Bushrod Playground, McClyman's High. Flood played with, um, again, if you're not a baseball fan, you won't recognize the name Frank Robinson, Beta Pinson. So what makes Kurt Flood special? This is an article in The Nation from yesterday. Kurt Flood belongs in baseball's Hall of Fame, where baseball immortals are elected every year to be uh, in, admitted in the Hall of Fame by sports writers. An outstanding hitter and outfielder during the 1950s and 60s, he sacrificed his career to challenge the control of baseball's corporate plutocracy over players' lives and livelihoods. Now, in those days, if you were a ball player, even a famous great ball player, you were tied to one team. You didn't have the right to go and try to make a deal with other teams. So Flood was tied to the St. Louis Cardinals by something called the Reserve Clause, which was kind of a tricky clause in, in every player's contract that said that the team reserved the right to that ball player's labor. So Kurt Flood was, I don't know, well, how would you call it, indentured to the St. Louis Cardinals, as were all players indentured to their teams. And they could be traded like property. <clears throat> and Flood, uh, when his, after a disappointing year in St. Louis, the team didn't win. Uh, they were perennial powerhouses in the league. Um, Flood was traded to the Philadelphia Phillies. At that time, Philadelphia had a terrible reputation uh, among black players. This is still the tail end now of Jim Crow. This is, this is the tail end of uh, institutionalized legal racism. And this was one of its implications. So what Flood did was refuse to be traded. 
even before the Major League Baseball Players Association, which is a very strong and excellent union for ball players now, Blood was an eager trade unionist. On our first date over dinner in 1964, he quizzed me about the Screen Actors Guild. Recalled his widowed Judy Pace Flood, who was a well-known actress in the 60s and 70s. He was particularly interested in the fact that SAG members had their own agents and lawyers, could negotiate with film studios over salaries, and could move to different studios, all things prohibited in Major League Baseball at the time. Flood, whose first season in the majors was a year after the 1955 Montgomery bus boycott, was one of the first ball players to get involved with the civil rights movement, said Pace. Jackie Robinson was his hero. For Kurt, players' rights and civil rights were part of the same idea. Flood later said, when asked about why he did this. He said, I was a child of the 60s. I looked around me and saw what was going on and I couldn't stay silent. In 1962, the 24-year-old Flood spoke at a rally organized by NAACP leader Medgar Evers. He told a crowd of 3,800 that he felt personal responsibility to fight racial injustice. So, push really came to shove in 1969 when he was traded to Philadelphia, and he refused to go. Now, he, Flood was one of the very best players of his time. He batted 293, close to that magic line of excellence, 300. Was one of the best outfielders, defensive outfielders in the game. And was a catalyst. The St. Louis Cardinals won the World Series twice in the 60s. He was co-captain of the team. At this time now, the players, there was a lot of ferment among players, and they hired a man named Marvin Miller to organize a union for them. The... And the um, powers that be, the management people and the owners, of course, were up in arms. They didn't want the players to have a union. They were making money hand over fist. The average salary for a ball player didn't go up from the end of the 1940s into the 60s. Miller instructed ball players in the ABCs of trade unions. 
fight for your rights, stick together against management, work on behalf of players who will come after you, prepare yourself professionally and financially to look after players. And don't allow owners to divide players by race, income, or their place celebrity pecking order. Okay? Good flood. Flood lost his case. He, he refused to be traded. Um, he was barred from playing. Sent to Philadelphia, the northernmost southern city. They offered him $100,000, which at the time was big money. But for Flood, was, money wasn't the issue. Someone asked him, Kurt, how can you say you're a slave? He said, because we're slaves. He said, a well-paid slave is still a slave. So Flood lost the suit. And the uh, Supreme Court ruled against them by five to three. Judge Harry Blackman wrote that baseball's exemption from federal antitrust laws supports addressing said it was an aberration and it was up to the Congress to fix that, not the courts. Situation. John Miller, I mean, uh, Marvin Miller is another one. Between 2003 and 2017, his name appeared on the ballot seven times, but the Hall's corporate-dominated board of directors rigged those elections to keep Miller out, making sure there were enough anti-union owners and executives on the by him. And the LBPA's executive director, Tony Clark, called bittersweet. He was elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame in 2019. that Miller will have a plaque at Cooper's time. What will it take to get Cooper What indeed? Sign Sancion Vistaca. So, Kurt Flood? Does Kurt Flood deserve a place in the Hall of Fame? Of course he does. And uh, I'm going to play Cancion Mixteca. With uh, Flaco Jimenez, I Cooter.
quiero porque nunca me habían visto enamorada yo te juro que yo misma no comprendo el por qué me fascina tu mirada cuando estoy cerca de ti y estoy contenta no quisiera que de nadie te acordaras tengo celos hasta del pensamiento que pueda recordarte Okay, we had an extra one on that set. Lidia Mendoza, the yes, without knowing a whole lot about her life, uh, we might compare her to Whitty Guthrie, that she went around to the work camps, both sides of the border, singing making money by singing to the workers. Uh, those were two of her songs. The last one was Hurame, Swear to Me, a love song. And before that, we had Malombre, which uh, might be directed at one of the capitalists or some of the capitalists or against Mr. Trump, whoever you want. Malombre literally means bad man, but it's much more of a curse in Spanish than just say, oh, you're a bad man. Mal hombre, an SOB. 
Before that, we had Cafeteras, a band that's one of my favorites. They were uh, students who met at Cal State Northridge and decided to become a band. Uh, had limited experience playing instruments, but they decided that's what they were going to do. And uh, the song we played was a takeoff on La Bamba. No soy... Soy Capitan, Soy Capitan. Instead of saying Soy Capitan, they say Soy Chicano. Soy Chicano. And before that, Ry Cooter, and I believe it was Flaco Jimenez, I'm not sure, playing Cancion Mixteca, the ultimate song of the Mexican person who is far away from Mexico and sings about it. Cancion this is the B, and you're listening to Labor and Love Radio, and I'm coming at you from 2781 21st Street here in uh, San Francisco, California, the heart of the mission, as we say, El Mero Mero, the really true the real part of the mission. Come on down to Mutiny Radio, 2781 21st Street, and join in. We have here is nothing less than a community arts center, radio, comedy, video, art installations, Come on down to Mutiny and find your voice. Okay, I want to talk now about Liliokalani. Liliokalani was the last queen of Hawaii. And just recently, last week, the governor of Hawaii told mainland tourists, don't come to Hawaii. And his reasoning was that you came to Hawaii, he would bring the COVID, and they already have the COVID. They don't need more of it. So, Queen Liliokalani. She was the first and the only woman to rule as the queen of the Kingdom of Hawaii. This was the first time that America took over a sovereign nation. Eighteen ninety-five, Honolulu, Hawaii. After her overthrow by American businessmen. Queen Liliuokalani was arrested by the provisional U.S.-led government and placed under house arrest. Liliuokalani was marched from her private residence to Iolani Palace, where she was locked in a bedroom suite and kept captive for months. To occupy herself, she stitched a quilt telling her life story, composed hymns. That first night of my imprisonment, 
was the longest night I have ever passed in my life. It seemed as though the dawn of day would never come. I am imprisoned in this room for the attempt of the Hawaiian people to regain what had been wrested from them. The queen was born Lydia Liliu Kamikaeha in 1838 at the base of an extinct volcano near Honolulu to a family of high chiefs and advisors to the king. Following Hawaiian tradition, she was raised by parents of higher rank than her own. Immediately after my birth, I was taken to the house of another chief by whom I was adopted. It is not easy to explain to those alien to our national life, but it seems perfectly natural to us. Lili Uokalani became part of the royal court of King Kamehameha IV, who ruled the Eight Island Kingdom of Hawaii for a decade, a constitutional monarchy modeled after the British system. It was a very, very strategically important point to the British, to the Americans, and to the Japanese. And there was a, quite a bit of wrangling in the 19th century over what countries should have control over the Hawaiian kingdom. Baptized as a Christian from age four, Lili Uokalani was educated at an English language school for children of the royal court run by American missionaries. The first American missionaries arrived in Hawaii in 1820, and their sons and grandsons went into the sugarcane business, buying up land to establish plantations and there was active suppression of the speaking and teaching of the Hawaiian language. Lili Okalani showed musical talent early on. She had perfect pitch and played numerous instruments. In the late 1860s, she composed music that would be adopted as the national hymn of the sovereign nation of Hawaii. Later on, she would write Aloha Oe, which is still to this day probably the best known Hawaiian song. To compose was as natural to me as to breathe. My ancestors were particularly gifted as lovers of poetry and music, and yet there are few, if any, written compositions of the music of Hawaii except those published by me. Music was her consolation, and it was her opportunity to speak directly to her people. My name is Meliana Aluli Meyer. I'm an artist, educator, and student of all things Hawaiian. My great-grand-aunt was a lady-in-waiting, the confidant of the queen. I lead groups of youth and artists in examining not only history, but their creative visual voice. Native Hawaiians and others in the community respond to these murals in a very profound way because we're actually making visible aspects of pain and sorrow and loss to help people understand our legacy. Our murals depict who we are. In her 20s, Lili Uokalani went door to door to raise money to build Hawaii's first hospital. 
Queen's Hospital opened in 1860 to combat diseases brought by foreigners such as smallpox and influenza, which had decimated almost 85% of the native Hawaiian population in 50 years. In 1862, Lilio Kalani married John Dominus, a white American raised in Honolulu and a commander in the royal court. She later turned her attention to philanthropy, founding a bank for women and setting up a fund to support the education of Hawaiian girls. After her younger brother, David Kalikaua, became Hawaii's king, he made her heir apparent in 1877. But the white business class ended up gaining much of the economic power in the islands, not only the plantations, but also the churches, the schools, and many other cultural institutions. More unsettlingly, Liliu Kalani started to realize that her brother's cabinet was filled with very corrupt businessmen. In 1887, white businessmen forced her brother the king to sign a new constitution that weakened the monarchy and removed the right of native Hawaiians to vote unless they were landowners. It became known as the Bayonet Constitution. Having matured their plans in secret, the men of foreign birth rose one day en masse and forced the king to sign a constitution which practically took away the franchise from the Hawaiian race. When her brother died suddenly in 1891, Lili Uokalani assumed the throne, becoming the first and only sovereign queen of Hawaii. With support from the majority of Native Hawaiians, she attempted to overturn the Bayonet Constitution. The Constitution she was putting forward was one that would have restored voting rights to Native Hawaiians and would have increased her powers as a constitutional monarch. But the white businessmen and politicians were already plotting her overthrow. Queen Liliuokalani became the target of what can only be described as a vicious smear campaign against her in the U.S. press. The San Francisco Examiner described her as a black pagan queen who wanted nothing short of absolute monarchy. A trap was sprung upon me by those who stood waiting, as a wild beast watches for his prey. January of 1893, a battalion of U.S. Marines marched through downtown Honolulu. They had a cannon and machine guns. Within 48 hours, the Kingdom of Hawaii had been overthrown, and a provisional government led by U.S. businessmen was in charge. It was essentially a bloodless coup. Queen Liliuokalani traveled to the U.S. to appeal to the President and Congress to restore her to the throne. It would be very, very unusual for a woman of color to demand a meeting with not only the president, but many other people in Washington at the time. And so while she might have presented as a demure woman in Victorian era modest clothing, 
she also contained within her the fierceness of the native Hawaiian goddess. I would undertake anything for the benefit of my people. It is for them that I would give my last drop of blood. President Grover Cleveland agreed the Queen should be reinstated. But Congress rejected that recommendation, and on July 4, 1894, American businessman Sanford Dole, whose family soon founded Dole Food Company, declared himself Hawaii's president and placed the Queen under house arrest for eight months. The overthrow caused trauma not only of a political sort, but a spiritual and an ethical sort because we sought to bring our queen back and reinstate her through laws and policies that we counted on. We even had a petition of over 37,000 signatures. So it's like being left with nothing except a shell of who we were. So it's taken a long time to rebuild. Lili Okalani is the reason we all do the work we do. And there are many of us everywhere, in education, in health, in advocacy for land. We are doing the work of the Queen today, bringing the culture back so that Hawaiians can thrive. Lili Uakalani was released in 1895. She spent the rest of her life advocating for native Hawaiian rights and culture. In 1909, she sued the U.S. government to return the 1.75 million acres of Hawaiian royal lands it had seized, but was unsuccessful. She passed in 1917, giving all of her monies to the children of Hawaii. You've got Gandhi, Mandela, King, all of these leaders. But before all of them, you had woman in the far-flung Pacific who is a leader for all in terms of peace, social justice, and righteous action for her people. Hawaii became the 50th state in 1959. In 1993, the U.S. Congress issued an apology acknowledging that the overthrow of Queen Liliuokalani had been illegal. Never cease to act because you fear you may fail. The true secret is to know your own worth. It will carry you through many dangers. That was the story of uh, Queen Liliokalani. This last week, governor of Hawaii asked uh, asked um, <clears throat> tourists not to come to Hawaii and spread the spread the the covid um there's another activist Hanani K Trask now Trask was a Hawaiian activist who died just recently on July 3rd he was a leader of the Hawaiian Sovereignty Movement and a professor emeritus at the University of Hawaii. He was born October 3rd, 1949. The uh, 
descendants of kings of Maui. She went to the University of Chicago, Wisconsin, University of Wisconsin. Her dissertation was revised into a book, The Promise of Feminist Theory. And Trask, along with her sister, was one of the founders of the Hawaiian Rights Movement. Let's see if we can find something about her. And we're not getting any sound here. Here's a news item. We'll read a little bit more about her. Point activist and educator Haunani K. Trask has died. Known for her passionate speeches, Trask led many and inspired many in the Hawaiian community to seek self-determination. She was also credited with creating the Center for Hawaiian Studies at UH Manoa. Jen Boniza spoke to family and friends and has more. Poet, teacher, accomplished author, fierce warrior, and pioneer of Hawaiian sovereignty has died. How Nani K. Trask passed peacefully in her sleep early Saturday morning. She had no pain, no injury. She did not pass from COVID, uh, but she, she went to bed at her regular time. And then this morning, uh, early, early morning, they found that she had passed in her sleep. My students do not to need to be beaten. How Nani Kay, as many of her friends and family called her, touched the lives of thousands with her passionate speeches and tireless teachings as a professor at the University of Hawaii for more than three decades. Her legacy lives on in a strong way through all of the writings and speeches that she did, um, through the programs that she built, and through the students that she taught, many of whom are educators now, you know, in their own right in um, in schools throughout Hawaii. Um, so we have a better understanding, a clearer understanding of the truth of Hawaiian history because of her and the work that she did. Her brilliance um, and her really uncompromising um, quest for justice uh, was an inspiration to people, young and old. She was a captivating and fearless speaker, unafraid to fight for her beliefs. America has always been at war. It is a warring country. It is a country that believes in markets and resources, not in people, not in freedom, not in democracy. She inspired countless others and moved many of her students to action. She dedicated her life to the movement. She dedicated her life to uplifting and raising the political consciousness of the Hawaiian people and educating us. And she gave us courage. It is an incredibly sad time. Um, I, my heart really uh, goes out to her ohana and to her partner. Um, at the same time, I just feel incredibly grateful that 
so many of us students have been impacted by her and that Hawaii has had such a fierce, fierce warrior. Aunani K. Trask was 71 years old. Jen Boniza Cage went to news working for Hawaii. Okay, the story there of Hawaiian activist Hanani K. Trask, who uh, passed away just last month. And a uh, person who was against Hawaiian tourism. We want to hear about it. We want to hear about more howlies, as white people are called, going to Hawaii. All right, let's see. Uh, got a little time left here. It's about 11.30. I want to get on with our labor beat. Labor and Love Radio, the website where we sort of catalog labor stories that come up during the week. This is from The Real News, the journalist who won't give up on... Alabama's striking coal miners. We talked uh, a couple times about coal miners who had, were going to New York City to confront the board of directors of the coal company that was striking. Over 1,100 union coal miners in Brookwood, Alabama, have been on an unfair labor practices strike against Warrior Met Coal for about five months. And for five months, the mainstream media has barely made a peep about the strike. Instead, a small collection of independent journalists, local and progressive media outlets have been working overtime to cover this important story. including Jacob Morrison, David Story, and Adam Keller at the Valley Labor Report, the only weekly labor talk show. There's one person, however, who has done more than anything, anyone, to lift the strike at Warrior Med into public consciousness for over five months straight. And that's independent journalist Kim Kelly. Go to the Real News Network to listen to an interview with Kim Kelly. And uh, play, we'll play a little bit of it on our way out of here. works but you know we can only make those plans come true if we get more financial support from our subscribers on patreon um you know you guys know we don't have ad a damn peep about this important struggle instead a small collection of local media progressive media and independent journalists have been really doing the work 
to keep covering this story. And, you know, we have been honored to play a small part in that effort here at Working People and over at the Real News Network and in these times. But, I mean, Jacob, Adam, and David at the Valley Labor Report have really done so much to carry the load, you know, bringing excellent coverage on this issue and other important issues every single week. And, you know, let's let's not forget that they helped organize a major fundraiser for the strike, a couple months background, and they also talk a lot about covering the Amazon Union Drive and then this strike at Warrior Met Cult. Like a music publicist and all this stuff, the music business. And really, I kind of fell face first into labor world because I was working at Vice. I was the heavy metal editor. This is back in like 2015. And we organized, we unionized our workplace. And I was got super involved. And, you know, I started spending more time at union halls than at heavy metal shows. And I don't know, man. I just sort of, I found it not a, I haven't replaced anything or changed anything in terms of how I feel about music and culture or whatever. But I guess I found a, a hot new boyfriend called the labor movement. <laughs> <laughs> That's I, I love that. Um, Connor, I talked to him last week, Connor Lewis from Strikewave, and he he had a, a pretty similar thing that he his, his parents were both uh, unionists, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly. But he didn't think that that was really going to be kind of his shtick. And but then he organized his workplace and it became his shtick. <laughs> that's how they get you. Yeah. You know? <laughs> My family's all union too, but I never, I mean, I'm a writer. Like I type words on a computer. I never mm. really thought that I would have access to a union. Right. And it didn't really come up. So I was just a blogger. Like, I just wrote stuff on the internet. No one was like, you know, hey, hit up the news guild or the writers guild. Like there's, there are other people like you that actually have some sorts of basic protections. No, like you don't just come across that stuff unless you're super immersed in lefty or progressive world really it's you mm. kind of have to know where to look yeah and how did yeah. that how did that campaign advice start if you don't like i don't know you know i don't know how quickly we should go ahead and get to the minor stuff if you if you have a if you have a decent amount of time we might could dive yeah, into that a yeah bit. i'm not going nowhere okay <laughs> like i told you i've locked myself in this weird old victorian house in maine Literally, it's just me and a bat that I still can't find. So I have. <laughs> that's been, that's, for folks that are listening to this, whatever it comes out, that's been like a running, like every day, Kim tweets, <laughs> like, I still haven't found a bat. So, <laughs> so it looks you like. You just showed up. Goals <laughs> and, and those stories for other people, I guess. Is that, is that kind of the, the path there? So it was, I was also at a point in my career or whatever, especially advice where I was feeling uh, kind of burned out. Um, I've been covering metal since I was 15 and 33, and this is a few years ago, so do whatever math you want. But I've been, I spent like most of my life writing about and caring about paying attention to one thing, and I'm pretty good at it. I was very well known. I was <laughs> probably one of the most hated women in metal because I, you know, as I became more of a political person, that came out in my work, and I got really involved in calling out the racism and sexism and homophobia and transphobia and anti-Semitism in the scene. People didn't necessarily like that. So I had to deal with a lot of harassment doing my regular job. And I was already more, more interested in politics and culture. Like I was into a lot of different things that felt very pigeonholed. And so I was already trying to contribute more to other vice sites and kind of dip my toes into other beats. But mm -hmm. because I spent my whole life writing about heavy metal, I didn't feel like 
this is on me. I didn't really feel like I had any business or cred writing about other stuff. I didn't have any really any clips being like, oh, look, I've written about this before. It was kind of a, a new horizon. Right. And so when I got involved in organizing advice and really dived into labor world, I, uh, what is this? Sorry, I got a weird. No worries. really get invested in a story like that before as working with um more perfect union um, to do that and that was my first my first video thing really and my first kind of long-term dug-in um story i suppose coverage attempt and i went back there a few times and i you know i really got to know people i really got to care about them i got really invested in their struggle and the difference there was that there was tons of other people that also cared and were also there and were covering it. There's media everywhere. So while I was, you know, doing my best and I really cared about what was happening, was covering it very closely, I didn't feel nearly the amount of responsibility that I think I've, you know, personally decided to feel that I do about the miners. And I mean, I ended up finding out about them because I was in Alabama for my third time. It was in Birmingham to uh, attend the closing rally sort of thing after the vote when people were kind of mourning and processing and, you know, gearing up for the next stage of the fight. I was down there and I had like a free day. And Chris Sessions, who's great, he's down there documenting the Amazon stuff. He, uh, he had a car and I don't. And we heard about this minor strike happening. I think it was about a week into the strike then. Or like, oh, we should go out and like, you know, go to the picket line and like bring them some donuts and just, you know, say what's up. I mean, we didn't think that the strike would last that long. Like right. strikes usually don't last this long. Right. But I went out there and met people and I just I think maybe I've gotten sort of accustomed to this idea of like once you find a story you care about, you follow it through and you get invested and you get involved. But I'm trying to remember when I went back there the second time. I think it was um was it, I think it was for More Perfect Union or maybe The Real News. Uh, details are a little fuzzy, but I think for this particular case, it was really getting to know the women involved that kind of pulled me in. Hmm. Like, because a lot of the women in the auxiliary, like Hayden, Steph, and Cherry, and Leslie, like, we're all around the same age. And just kind of hearing about what they're going through and seeing what their lives are like and seeing the differences and the similarities between us. It just like, how can you not fall for them? You know, like they're my girls. We have a group chat. <laughs> it's right. been months. And the longer the strike's gone on, the more invested I've gotten because I've gotten to know these folks better. And I've also, like you said, seen how few media outlets seem to care. Like we're finally getting to a point where they're getting a little bit of national attention and other publications, even lefty publications are finally showing up. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I think there's, uh, I've sort of assigned myself. There's Kim Kelly sort of talking about her genesis, her change from being a writer of, uh, about heavy metal to becoming a labor writer, writing about labor. Like she said, I got into labor world. And um, that whole thing, you can look on the Real News Network for that complete, that complete um, 
interview, talking about the strike. One more strike I wanted to talk about. Let's see if we can get it up here. I wanted to talk about the Nabisco strike. This is hmm, a Nabisco strike started out in New Hampshire. And now it's spread to five other sites in the country. See if we can get this one quick here. Nabisco workers in Norcross, Georgia, going on strike. These are people who have been asked to work 84 hours a week at some point. Early this morning, talking about August 24th, members of Local 42 outside Atlanta joined their brothers and sisters in Portland, Oregon, Aurora, Colorado, Richmond, Virginia, and Chicago, Illinois, striking Nabisco. Nabisco workers in all five locations are saying strong and clear, stop exporting our jobs to Mexico and end your demands for contract concessions. BCTGM will take all appropriate action necessary to reach a contract settlement that treats Nabisco workers fairly and equitably. United in solidarity from Oregon and Colorado to Illinois, Virginia and Georgia, we stand ready to negotiate but refuse all attempts by this company to force workers to accept concessions that rob them of their dignity. Now that's definitely one to keep to keep in mind, to be watching. High-rise window cleaners also on strike. Minneapolis, Minnesota. High-rise window cleaners immune to fear in their second week of strike. Minneapolis workers are fighting for safety standards in a risky industry. Minnesota, a strike by unionized high-rise window cleaners at two companies has entered its second week. Again, we're talking August 24th. There are members of SEIU, Local 26, a vocal and politically active union with 8,000 members in the Twin Cities. Though the window cleaners are few in number, they have been able to generate outsized attention locally, thanks to the union's well-honed ability to pull off visible strikes in and around Minneapolis. Beginning of last week, the workers have rallied and held picket lines major buildings in downtown Minneapolis and the city's airport. Some of them have worked cleaning handrails, walkways, and glass. The issue is a contract with three of the city's property service companies, Apex North, Columbia Building Services, and Final Touch. Apex has already agreed to sign the contract and its employees are working. The other two companies have not and their workers are on strike. Columbia and Final Touch.
follow it. Window washers. But what happened was window washers were all of a sudden expected to clean inside the offices too. And the workers started catching COVID. All the window cleaners now on strike work through the entire pandemic, but half of them now have caught COVID. Okay. Anyway, it's about time for us to get out of here. This is me talking to you from Mountain Radio, 2781 21st Street. A for real art center right here in the community. We have comedy, we have media, we have art installations. You can rent the space for your own art project, whatever it might be. Mountain Radio is the headquarters of the underground comedy movement. Brother Charlie Morgan. When he was in New Zealand, one in New time Zealand I there read was a, a magazine. Something nasty crossed my eye. The earth that fed me in California was turning cracked and dry. New Zealand ferns are always green. It rains more there than it should. I looked to the cloud that was raining on me and said, Go, you can do some good. Cloud stop crying and wasting time and fly across the sky. Spread a lot of rain, sweet rain, spread a lot of rain on California. I don't want to see her die. This is the bee reminding you that at Labor and Love Radio, Francisco we tell you how it is. He said the great one person gets a dollar they didn't world, work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. Nobody had a garden. You don't have a seat at the Nothing table, the negotiating me. table that is where you work. Kind of You're on the menu. And never, but never let anyone around. into your heart who is not a friend Cattle of labor. It's only Every a waste of time. Labor and Love Radio are the labor movements of Okay, have a good weekend, good work. This is the B signing off. Stay tuned to Mutiny Radio. Clouds stop crying and wasting time and fly across the sky. And spread a lot of rain, sweet rain, spread a lot of rain on California. I don't want to see her die. I stared up to the diamond stars one cashmere night. Black velvet sky and a raging river was no other sound or sight. The Big Dipper hung up above the river and I felt that it was a shame. All this water here in California dry, I said to the Dipper by name. 
Reach down and kiss that raging river and fly across the sky. Spread a lot of rain, sweet rain, spread a lot of rain on California. I don't want to see her die. R.I.P. Charlie Morgan. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of Mutiny Radio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> Got the mutiny, mutiny radio. Got the mutiny, mutiny radio. Got the mutiny, mutiny radio, my friend. Got mutiny, mutiny radio. Got mutiny, mutiny radio. Got mutiny radio, my friend. You ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience? Like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Oh, shit. From time to time, I've given it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes. And they'll even say nice things, dude, before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dang nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Sorry about that. Was that you singing that song? Because you've played that song before on your show. That's right. What are they like? That's what I'm Michael Spiegelman. And I am Carl, not Spiegelman. We're hosts of... <laughs> uh, Follow us on podcast by with our acronym L W A F L M O Y C. We watch a full length movie on YouTube with you, and you listen to the podcast and yeah. watch the movie at the same right. time. Yeah. 
L-W-A-F-L-M-O-Y-T. L-W-A-F-L-M-O-Y-T. That's every Sunday, 2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, or if you're Carl, 5%. Right. I'm so lazy. Three hours later, I finally get to the show, 5 p.m. Let's hear the theme song. Oh. Let's watch full-length All right, let's do a full-minute promo. Oh, never mind. Bye. See you next month. I was, was just really leaving the theater. Cadillac, convertible, 1969 gold Cadillac with a white interior. I drove it up here. And I started to do some thinking. Around in and on the freeway. And I'm having a really, really good time. Flat black plastic. Smoking big spliffs and cruising. Saturday, 92. On the freeway. Good feeling. I'm telling you. Let's do it. Jesus. This is absolutely right. I am Teddy Bellius, an adolescent. And I will cut Hello, the Blake. Henry! Yeah. Charlie here. Yeah. I have a report here, Henry, from your uh, from your chief nurse, Major O'Houlihan. She makes some accusations, Henry. I, I find pretty hard to believe. Uh, the dude minds, man. Safe sex is more than just avoiding STIs and pregnancy, no matter what you're into. Make sure that you and those around you feel safe, comfortable, and are having a good time. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio. Hey, everybody. Listen to the Weekly Review with Roman every Friday from noon to 2 p.m. This is an unapologetically anti-capitalist program. We interview community organizers, activists, and artists. We talk about ways you can take action right now. So listen in to the Weekly Review every Friday from noon to 2 p.m. My name is Breakfast, and I'm running for Chancellor of the United States of America. For too long, we have gone without a Chancellor who is willing to take bold leaps of faith and logic to create new possibilities for our great, big, fat nation. As your Chancellor, I will balance the budget on the head of a pin, give entertaining speeches, have scandalous affairs, Write strongly worded letters to unpopular foreign leaders. Look good on camera. End all hunger, crime, abuse, war, disease, disasters, sadness, depression, oppression, repression, suppression, transgression, obsession, expression, impression, regression, and digression by signing pieces of paper that express my disapproval of such things. And... Invest in an American flag pin to be worn prominently on my stylish jackets. 
It's time to work together to take the country back from us and return it to ourselves. It's time to turn this country around and drive it into opposing traffic. It's time to take a chance on the Chancellor. who have an insatiable appetite for all things in life, who scream at nothing and everything at the same time, who dance till sunup, who cause the sun to set again with irreverent bow, who rival the moon with gravitational force, who leave rooms feeling empty and earthquake struck, who don't give a fuck, who make, who do, who dream out loud and laugh like maniacs, who draw shock and awe on faces graced with watching, who create from the soul of an orgasm, who swagger even alone in the shower, who fight with passion, and love with passion and our passion who catapult over cliffs in the name of revolution who would rather die than fall in line to conform who constantly challenge the norm who greet each and every day as if just born i say to you i know your greatness the way a suicide jumper knows weightless just before the impact and in fact i know it best when i say to you i love you Hello there, my friends out at Mutiny Radio. Chester Cashcock here, giving you my love and regards as well as movies over there. And you know, anytime I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Bamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10. They have a fun time at Pamtastics Deep in the Mission, where you can laugh off your tushy every Friday for a mere $10. And $10, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with, so to wipe it off for is <laughs> in duty this. And if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, don't worry, don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show in the comfort of anywhere, like your Aspen summer cottage on the mountain ridge for the kayaks. <laughs> Just go to podcast.pcrcollective.org or mutinyradio.fm podcasts and look.